Hello and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have two co-hosts, myself, Hunter Sagona, and my friend, Sean Rimkunis. Sean and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Today, I will sit down with cousin and fellow theater lover, John M. Matuna. A native of San Francisco, John has been a New York City resident for the past 10 years, including his time receiving his BA from Marymount, Manhattan. Though he works in the healthcare field, his past theater works include the role of Ross in Les Miserables, where he won the Best Featured Actor, a top honor, where he played Pippin in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, he played Mike in A Chorus Line, Prince Dauntless, he was the understudy in Once Upon a Mattress off-Broadway, Steve, the central character in the unfortunately never making it to off-Broadway musical Velveteen Rabbit, uh, Ren in Footloose, he was the understudy, Nikos in Legally Blonde, and Chad and the understudy for Dennis in All Shook Up. So without further ado, let's welcome John to the podcast. So, John, welcome to the podcast. We're happy to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, and so we're going to dive right in right away. And the first thing that I want to ask you is, like, what was your first foray into the musical theater world? Like, um, and I know that when we talk about some of your songs later, you'll probably talk a little bit more about it, but I'm curious as to where it all started. It kind of started before I was even born. My parents were actually not theater people at all. <laughs> um, then uh, for some reason they went on a date uh, one time to see the Phantom of the Opera and uh, they fell in love with theater. So then when they had my sister and me, they put us in dance classes like right from the beginning. Um, ah. We started performing right away. <laughs> oh, that's very cool. So you were, pro- you were a dancer first, technically. I was, yeah. I actually danced like the first 12 years of my life um, only. Um, my sister was more of the singer. And then once I got into middle school, I realized, I, oh, maybe I can sing. So I started taking voice lessons um, and then got into choir and started doing musicals and it just snowballed from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess my first foray and, and first show, I guess, that I've seen, uh, I had seen was Wicked. Um, it was uh, um, on a tour in San Francisco um, in 2005. I remember the year. I don't remember the month, but I saw it in 2005. Um, and it was actually really cool. Um, Adam Lambert was in the show. And it oh, was, really? I can't remember if it was pre-American Idol or post, but um, I loved the show, obviously, um, and had read the book. So um, it was really, um, really cool experience being there. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, obviously, that you, you know, your family had no previous uh, musical theater experience other than seeing the theater. Are they musical in any way? Like, do they play instruments or? No, uh, not at all. No? Um, I mean, like, sing along to the radio, but well, yeah, not musical at all. No? And no one in my family. Um, it's only one member of my family that's kind of, like, removed, and it's like my second great uncle who used to play the violin and sing that was it hmm. everybody Interesting. else um, it's not involved so it's surprising yeah it doesn't seem to be much of a the 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 bloodline that we share it doesn't seem to be prominent in that i mean like 
uh, obviously you know we're musical but i i can't think of anyone else and yeah. in, in, that we share isn't that funny it's interesting uh, now your day job is obviously not very related to uh the music world at all how did that come about uh so in 2016 that was the last show i did um i was in a chorus line and i had been having back trouble when i was in college but um it got progressively worse throughout that show specifically, obviously because it's a hard dance show. It's a big dance and, show. And yeah, uh, it was just hard standing there the entire time in that line, the whole entire show. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so I got, when I got to the end of the run, I kind of had a sense that I might not be back on the stage dancing right away. Um, and so I started going to physical therapy, trying to figure out what was wrong with my back. Long story short, I had back surgery. Um, and just been in the post recovery, uh, post surgery recovery years right now, uh, still trying to heal from that um, and trying to find another way to be involved um, in theater that isn't directly uh, performing on the stage for now. Yeah. And obviously right now, particularly the, the 2020, 2021 year of, I don't even know what you would call it, has probably <laughs> made it even more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I've seen all my friends, you know, suffering with, not having jobs mm -hmm. um and one of my friends he was in the national tour of cats and uh oh. he's a phenomenal dancer um he played i forget the name of the character it's the two uh gino catswell i don't know uh not too much i know there's like mccavity uh, you know he's the, the big yeah, he played uh, they do like a duet together it's i forget the name um anyway he has had a great career um and now he's working at his dad's construction construction company in virginia middle mm -hmm. of nowhere like doesn't know what's going to be happening it's just crazy how people's lives have changed big time i mean it's sort of upended everything i mean it, and you don't get much you know uh, bigger removed things from theater and construction i mean it's like right. although i suppose you could say there are builders <laughs> right so if you wanted to go into set building i get that i guess that'd be great yeah Absolutely. <laughs> but in your, your day job, uh, how have you guys been affected by the, the pandemic? Uh, well, I work in healthcare, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was not anything I had ever expected. I, uh, where I work now, I used to be a patient of uh, oh. prior, and I had such great experiences that I applied uh, just randomly and got the job right before the pandemic happened. It was August of 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and once that happened, uh, I've been going into work every single day, um, and it was odd being in New York City um, with no one around at all. You yeah, that's stand weird. You just walk down the center of the street, and there would be no cars, nothing. It's like apocalyptic in a way. That's really creepy. I mean, I know you'd heard, like I'd heard of it, but it's odd to hear it described like that. Yeah. Now, when did you wind up moving to New York? I moved to New York in 2011, um, and I came here for college. Okay. I was it. I mean, I imagine, you know, San Francisco's a city. I mean, it's not like it's, you'd never been in a city before, but was it a change? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I, it was actually a, um, it was a change, but it wasn't very dramatic of a change because my dad is from here. So right. I felt like he raised me the way people are raised on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. uh, so growing up, I always felt like, I didn't really understand other people because <laughs> my dad was very loud and like, you know, Italian. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just always felt like the, the just confused in California. And when I came here, I was like, oh, people are, that are like me here, personality wise, it's, it was really nice. Yeah, that's really funny. So you would not describe the West Coasters as loud? 
No, uh, they're loud in a different way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just didn't find them, um, you know, as friendly as people are here, uh, which is odd because you hear New Yorkers are not friendly. But right. Friendly. No, they are. It's you know what I think it's it's more of I think people mistake um, bluntness for unfriendly. Yes. But you can have someone who's very friendly, but they're just very straight and to the point. And I think that's more of what the East Coast is. Like, there's not a lot of tiptoeing around, you know, feeling and, yeah. and nice. And everybody moves so quickly here. So I think it, people read that as just being rude, but they're just trying to get where they're going. Very much so. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Um, and you mentioned in your uh, the bio statement that uh, this is shifting way gears now, going yeah. back to the musical aspect of it. But you, since you mentioned college, you said that one of your classmates or the people who went to, you know, your, your peers from the school was in Hairspray. Yes. Live. And uh, how is that to see a peer who, you know, you may have known or may have heard about, and now there they are right there on the screen. Right. <laughs> um, well, it was amazing because uh, the, how I found out, uh, we, we were decent friends because we did the show together. We were in Once Upon a Mattress in, in, in college together, but that was off Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, she played Winifred. I was understudy for Dauntless. Uh, Prince oh, Dauntless. Cool. Um, so I did get to go on a few times because uh, he had called out six. So that was really fun performing with her. Um, but she uh, is amazing. She's very talented. And when we were going through that rehearsal process, we all knew that she was going to do very well in the business. Mm -hmm. um, that was no secret. She's phenomenal. Um, and so I was making pancakes one morning. I had graduated school already. I've uh, been working and I turn around TV <laughs> and it was like a movie. I just dropped my pan because I saw her on TV and they had announced that she was going to be in it. She didn't tell anyone. Oh, no. um, and she just went to the open call. She was like 300 and something in line and uh, got the job. It was amazing. Wow. That's so funny. And you know, it's, it's clearly, like you said, you know, I imagine that seeing her performing, you know, there are some people, you know, when you look at them, you're like, Oh, they're definitely going to do well. Um, right. But it's still weird to see the success. You yeah. know what I mean? I can't and say I know anyone like that, but. She uh, is actually going to be in a movie coming out uh, with Adina Menzel. They're in um, a remake of Cinderella. Oh, uh, really? And so they filmed that last year. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. And who's she playing? I'm <laughs> uh, sorry? Uh, who's she playing? I don't know, actually. Um, I, I want to say one of the stepsisters. I can't hmm. remember. Wow, that's very cool. So, yeah. well, good for her. Yeah. Now, speaking of productions that, you know, again, you had mentioned, you said that you had been in a production of The Velveteen Rabbit. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, you know, you said it was a shame because it never made it to the off-Broadway setting it was supposed to get to. Uh, just talk a little bit about that. Like, what was yeah. it like to be in production? What was it about? So I randomly got a call from um, one, of my, one of my manager's friends, who's a director, and she was like, hey, I'm doing this out-of-town tryout of a really random show that came out in the 1980s. Apparently, the writers wrote this for their college, um, college final. Um, oh, okay. As we so, all do. Yeah, and it's right. <laughs> and so it had a tour in the 80s and early 90s, but um, it just kind of ended and everyone forgot about it. Um, so his goal was to take this piece and just like completely redo the entire thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was totally legal or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll so just we, hand wave it away yes right we uh, made crazy changes but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself so essentially I got a phone call from this guy who's saying I need to cast the show and the only person I haven't cast yet is the main character he's like this young boy 
um, would you come in and uh, audition for it? And he said, sure. So I auditioned, got it. I had to fly out literally like three days later, we went to Kentucky. Um, and it was done at the Jenny Wiley Theater Company down there in southeastern Kentucky. And we were in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, and he had been telling us, you know, it wasn't certain that we were going to transfer. But towards the end of the, the process, he was saying, you know, it's looking like we might. Um, would you be interested? Um, and yeah, it was, it was pretty much that. That was it. We were supposed to go to New World Stages, which is an off-Broadway theater here. Um, mm -hmm. The only thing recently I can remember being there was the Heather's musical. Um, but very sad that it didn't work out because it was a great, great show. Um, what was yeah. it about? So um, it's about the, it's the boy all grown up that used to have the Velveteen Rabbit. So you meet him at the beginning. It's like 19, coming home from college. And he comes back to his room and he basically like relives his like childhood once he comes across the Velveteen Rabbit that he thought was lost forever. Um, it's a very touching story and like all the other toys come to life. Um, and I actually did the show with two, I went to two different colleges when I was in college. Um, I transferred partway through and I actually did that show with one person from each school <laughs> that I knew. Oh, that's so school. funny. So it was very odd. Uh, but they, uh, one of them played my older brother in the show. The other one was one of the toys. Um, and it was so fun. Like it was just such a fun show. You leave afterwards sobbing, but um, you feel good after. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that we that's would cool. have the opportunity, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you've had a lot of experience, you know, looking at the number of shows that you did. You know, you've been Les Mis, Pippin, Chorus Line. You mentioned Once Upon a Mattress. Did you have a favorite show to do? I think of all of them, Les Mis was, it ties, it's like Les Mis and uh, Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde was so much fun. Really? Um, yeah, that show is, you have to have like, sky high energy the mm -hmm. entire time and it was just a party like the whole time it's just so much fun at the high school i went to um here in trumbull actually trumbull high uh the music director for the the productions that they did he said the one show he would never do ever like you put a gun to his head he would refuse was legally blonde <laughs> he just he hated the show with a passion Aww. and we had a like a couple of strong female leads who could have done the the part so the the director considered doing it she was one of the english teachers and uh he just was so adamant he was like never he he hated he said it was well from a musical standpoint a very poorly written show again not like the actual writing but the musical writing he just didn't like i guess he, he felt it wasn't high quality um I'm not so familiar with the music. I know some of the big numbers from the show, but I mean, it seems pleasant enough. Like it's probably a crowd pleaser, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it clearly didn't do that well because it wasn't on Broadway very long. But no, um, I I actually love the music, I, and I'm not really into those types of shows. I kind of live in the vein of very dramatic epic shows. I mm -hmm. love those. And Slam is. Yes, I, I love the big score. It's just so pretty. Um, so it was a big change for me to do something like that, but I really loved it. Mm -hmm. And he just died, you know, the guy who did the um, music for Les Mis, I want to say. What? Really? Yeah, I oh think so. Or he was the, he, he was the, either the lyricist or the composer. I can't remember. I don't think was... Or Claude Michel Schoenberg? Claude Michel Schoenberg, yeah. I didn't know he died. That's so sad. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm pretty sure he did. It was in either, I think it was in 2020. Wow, he's ruining everyone's lives <laughs> and taking just, them away. I know, it's just, it's so sad. Um, so with that, since we were talking about 
music, obviously, hence the, the name of, you know, the podcast, Music Speaks. Um, yeah. We should probably talk about some of the music. And, yeah. you know, the first piece that you wanted to talk about, or, or rather the first uh, subject, which we already mentioned, was Wicked, right? Yes. And Stephen Schwartz and his work. And obviously, you know, you mentioned earlier that it was the first show you had seen. Right. And do you have a favorite number from the show? Yeah, I, when I put Wicked on there, I was I was gonna be like, oh, all these listeners, I don't know who's gonna be listening to me, but I don't. Whoever is listening, they're gonna be like, oh, it's so commercial. Um, like that's like saying The Lion King or Mamma Mia. But mm-hmm. uh, Wicked was different, especially at that time. Um, yeah. Being at that age, like I was in the age group that they were making the show for. So like mm-hmm. going as a kid, um, it was just crazy because you grew up on The Wizard of Oz and you see something like that at that age. It was just very inspiring. Um, and everyone's getting into that rebellious, like, teenage <laughs> So everyone loves, like, the rebellion in it, um, and, like, defying gravity. But, um, I think you asked, like, favorite song. Um, I do have one favorite song, and, and the reason is, um, it's The Wizard of Night, first of all, but the reason why I love it is that, um, the story behind how it came to be, um, uh, mm-hmm. is so fascinating to me. Um, it used to be a completely different song. Um, oh, I'm not sure you're familiar with that, but it was called, um, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name now. Um, Making Good. It was, uh, it was called Making Good. Um, and it was a much darker song. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Stephen Schwartz told um, this story when he was uh, in an interview once that uh, he got feedback that it was too dark and it made you dislike the character too soon. And the whole point of the song in that spot in the show is because it's their I want song. They come out on stage, they're telling you like their hope and dream. And that's when everyone falls in love with them. And she was being very um, dark and um, negative and <laughs> brooding. Right. So it was just a little too soon. Uh, so he started to think like, you know, what, how can I convey like her going to school and, and her being like on a train on her way to Shiz University. And so you kind of get that from when the music starts to pick up, uh, you get yeah. like that motion of the train and the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it's like very driving beat. Um, and then the specific thing with Adina Menzel playing the role that I thought was fascinating and how he wrote the song for her. Um, he said many years ago, he had seen a chorus line on Broadway. And uh, when they get to that finale moment, uh, you know, they all come out and they do the big kick line, but you're waiting for them to come downstage and do the kick line. And every time they come down, they turn around and like move again. <laughs> like, Wait, come on, give us the kick line. Yeah. So he said, when you watch Adina Menzel perform, uh, you know, you're always waiting for her to come out and belt her face off. Um, and so he made the audience like, wait for it. So you have yeah. the whole Wizard and I, it's just like building and she's kind of talk singing and really like telling the story. And uh, then you finally get to like the big ending part. Um, I think that's why it's such a gratifying moment. And so many people love that song is because just the buildup, it was just genius writing. Um, yeah. Sorry, that was long-winded. No, no, that's that's what I was looking for. You know, <laughs> I, I I wanted you know if there was a reason behind, there clearly was. Um, and obviously, we already answered that it was in fact your first musical at all. Um, but are you? I mean, obviously now you must be more familiar with other works by Schwartz. Um, yes. And do you have any other particular ones of his that you like? Yeah, um, his. All of his stuff has followed me. I think that's why he's my favorite composer. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I've been in Pippin. I've done Pippin several times as a child and an adult. Um, and I lo- absolutely love that show. The revival that was recently on Broadway was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love uh, one other song that is just very important to me is uh, Meadowlark. 
um, from the Baker's wife. Are you okay. familiar with that? I, yeah, uh, I'm familiar with the, I'm not too familiar with the show, but I, I think I know the song. It's so good. Um, like talk about storytelling. That's one of the big things I look for in music mm -hmm. is storytelling, whether that's through the, the composition of the actual music or it's the person performing. Um, and that's just one of those. It's, it's a long song. I think it's like five minutes long, but yeah. uh, it really takes you on like a full arc the entire time. Um, yeah. And I, I love music like that. Well, that reminds me of, uh, well, you know, some of, the, some of the songs in Wicked are like that, you know, they're longer and they're trying to convey the, the story. Uh, it reminds me of Let It Be from uh, Children of Eden. Yes, I love Children of Eden. It's, you know, it was funny. I, I was not familiar at, that much with the show prior to actually my co-host on this show wanted to do a deep dive into it. So we went through the whole thing and um, I, I heard so many compositional similarities between Wicked and Children of Eden because you hear it, you know, sometimes there's just a chord that strikes you yeah. and you're like, oh, I've heard that before. Yep. And you could tell it's the same composer. Not that he's like reusing work or anything, but it just, there's something, it's yeah, his work. Style. Yeah. Right, exactly, there's style. Um, and it's, it was fascinating in the Pippin revival and kind of funny. Um, at the end, the way he rewrote the ending of Morning Glow in the Act 1 finale was the exact same ending as Defying Gravity. Oh, really? <laughs> we changed it. Um, and obviously that was after Wicked had come out. So like, I think that um, that was probably unintentional, but it, everyone was like, oh my God, that sounded just like it was the same ending. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned you like the storytelling aspect of um, you know, performances. So therefore, are you a Sondheim fan? I'm actually not. No? I, he's, I, he's very hit or miss. I know. And I, I hate that I fall on the side of uh, not disliking it, but just not really, like, it doesn't grab me yeah. in the way that other music does. Um, there are, like, a couple songs that I love. Um, one, I actually, I'm saying all of this, but my audition song for college was a Sondheim song. Okay. <laughs> but, um, like I said, it's just a couple songs. I think what gets me is the books or, of the shows are not as strong as others. Well, that's so, definitely um, true. I can like fall asleep very easily. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, his, you know, I think the problem, uh, if you're looking at it from a book standpoint, is that his songs are intended to be a, a, the majority of the dialogue in the show. And therefore, right. not, not that the, the, the books are slighted, but I think sometimes so much effort is focused on making sure the, the songs themselves can convey a dialogue-like style that sometimes the actual dialogue is sometimes left behind. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I wouldn't say a huge fan of his. My favorite musical of all time is Into the Woods. And oh, great. so I obviously I like his work. One. If I had to pick one, that would be the one I'd pick. It's the best. Is it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's his best work. And having said that, I don't like all of his work, yeah. but I think the ones that I do like by him I really like, but I know a lot of people who they're just like, he doesn't, he doesn't do it for me. Right, right, yep. You know, and it's, I guess it's personal preference. But speaking of, uh, you know, like the, the, the singing aspect, obviously, cause you know, yeah. the storytelling is important, but the singing aspect of it, you're the second person that you mentioned or the second aspect we wanted to talk about was Whitney Houston. And yeah. you have uh, the I'm, uh, I Am Changing cover that you wanted to talk about. So she herself, is obviously legendary, massive star. Um, but why this song, why this in one in particular? So uh, this specific song, I'm all for, um, you know, like riffing on it, taking an idea, like an old idea and redoing it in a new unique way. Um, 
kind of like what happened with the Velveteen Rabbit story. Mm-hmm. And um, what's funny is when I did Once Upon a Mattress with Maddie Ballio, going back to that, um, we actually did that exact same thing to Once Upon a Mattress. We took the show and we put it in vaudeville era. Ooh. And uh, it was like very jazzy, very fun. Um, so what Whitney Houston does with I Am Changing, and to be clear for everyone listening, this is I Am Changing from Dreamgirls, the song um, most people know recently as Jennifer Hudson singing in the movie. Um, but she uh, takes it and makes it 10 minutes long, first of all. Um, and it's like this slow, soulful, intentional um, take on this song. And it's so much more moving and like blows your mind. Like I, one thing that people say about her is that she does too much when she sings sometimes. There's mm-hmm. too much riffing and too, too many embellishments. Um, I actually appreciate all of that because I want someone to come on stage and like show me what they can do. Like, you know, and she like t- took it all the way. It was, it's crazy. And if anybody hasn't listened to it, they need to Google um, on YouTube, whatever, whatever the search thing is. Um, look up I Am Changing um, 1986 Whitney Houston live performance. It will change your life. Hmm, wow. I mean, you know, she's, you know, obviously no one can take away from her singing ability. I mean, she's probably one of the best, one of the biggest and most powerful vocalists of probably, I mean, popular in the 80s, 90s. I'm going to say of the last, you know, 50 years, she's up there in in terms of uh, ability. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, she had such a tragic ending ending and, you know, that, that whole, the whole ending bit was really not great. Not just the actual end itself. Um, but her and the third person that you want to talk about, and, and if we, if we can, we'll connect it back to Whitney, both have tragic, uh, stories, which would be Judy Garland. Yes. And, uh, did you see the movie? Uh, oh God, was it, was it Judy? Wasn't that the name? Judy, of it? yeah. Yeah. Uh, with Renee Zellweger, right? With, yeah. Renee Zellweger. Yeah, it was great. It was great, but I, it was one of those movies where you're sitting in the theater and you're like, wow, I'm really feeling it, but I'm feeling like I want to throw myself under a bus because yeah, it's I, like, oh, geez, she was phenomenal, but it was so depressing. Um, and when you have people like this, you know, who are such big stars, who are um, as talented as they are, do you think that contributes to their downfall? Um, I think, it, yeah, it has a hand and I think the stress of it all. I think can eat at a person and if they have unresolved issues in their personal lives that can bleed into their work and uh it just becomes a big jumbled mess if they you know don't work it out so mm-hmm. everybody listening if you need therapy it's okay to get it mm-hmm. that's <laughs> very therapy, true there's no judgment no you're, you're very right now having said that then someone who you know they have a day job right and then they do that as a outlet do you think that puts them in a different headspace to perform as opposed to if it's your career? Yeah, 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 that's a great way to look at it. I think that, um, yeah, some people definitely are, um, definitely do that um, and it, it, that works out for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some people, you have, you have that on one end of the spectrum and you have the other people that take it way too seriously and, <laughs> them and uh, it doesn't go so well, so uh, yeah. yeah. Now, the actual songs you chose by Garland, I was surprised because, you know, they're, uh, they're both, I would say, fairly, fairly well-known, maybe not by her specifically, but they're both well-known in their own right. I love But Not For Me. I don't think you can go wrong with a, uh, with a Gershwin tune. Yes. Um, but why did you choose these two in particular? Um, they're kind of similar in a way, um, and I, they represent a type, a style of 
uh, singing and music um, in the, the Broadway world where um, it's just old school. Yeah. Like they, they just stop the motion of like the movie and they just like suck you in to yeah. this like, very delicate, quiet, like very fragile, uh, vulnerable moment that she has. And I just live for those performances because like Judy Garland can just like sing the phone book and make you cry. Yeah, she's very emotive. Yeah, commands the screen. It's crazy. I remember when I was, uh, what was I, junior? A junior in high school. We did the the musical Crazy for You. Ah. And, uh, you know, it's all all Gershwin tunes. And uh, this song, but not for me, was one of the songs in the show. And it is exactly what you describe, right? It's like, okay, all this stuff is happening. And then the female lead sings the song and it's nothing but she's sitting there, there's a spotlight and it's that kind of song, right? The song itself makes you feel something because it's a well-written song. But then when you add the performer on top of it, which in the case of this one is Garland, it's just, it's very easy or not, not for us, but it's easy for her to make it mean so much more. And I think it's a beautiful you know, melody anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and someone more popular that's perhaps, uh, not, not more popular than her, but someone who's popular more recently is uh, Shoshana Bean, who you mentioned that you had a couple songs by her you wanted to talk about. And they are, I Did Something Bad, the cover, and then Flag Maker from Songs for a New World by Jason Robert Brown. And it's funny, I was actually just listening to Jason Robert Brown um, I'm a huge fan of Honeymoon in Vegas. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so upset that like it didn't do better when it was on Broadway, but I heard that it actually, it, it was pretty popular for the people who saw it. Like they really liked it, but like so many, you know, movies you see, people like it if they go see it, but no one went to see it. Right. You know what right. I mean? It's one of those things. Um, that's completely like not related, but I felt that way about like uh, so the movie Solo, A Star Wars Story. Um, ah, yes. Everyone who saw it, or at least that I know, really liked it, but no one went to go see the movie. It was like a horrible, they did horrible publicity yeah. on it. It's a shame. It is, but that's a whole separate issue. Um, <laughs> and what was your introduction to Shoshana Bean? Oh, God. I think it... Because she's been around a while. Yeah, I, I would say it's like back early 2000s uh, videos, like when YouTube maybe first came out, I was watching like clips like people post today of Wicked mm-hmm. online and that's how I first heard of her name. Um, I don't think I got to see her perform like in person until I moved here probably took three years ago. Um, oh. But I had just always followed her because um, there was something about her when I first watched those videos online of her where she just uh, draws you in with her storytelling. Like I said before a million times, like a broken record the storytelling is what gets me and there are certain people like her uh that make you hear a song that you could hear a million times but you just hear it in a new way once they're singing um Mm -hmm. so similar to the stuff i've talked about before like with the i did something bad cover when her and cynthia rebo did that um i'm not a fan of taylor swift at all (laughs) and i don't dislike her but i just she's that's not who i listen to indifferent uh, and so um when I heard the song, I was like, wow, this is a great, like, new musical theater song. Uh, I, I, what is this? And my, my friend was like, oh, this is a Taylor Swift song. I could not believe because it was just like you had the two of them sitting there in all black and they took this, this like, upbeat pop 
song and they made this like a very serious, um, intense moment. It, I, it mm-hmm. had so much angst in it. I loved it. <laughs> so much angst in it. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yes. And well, you know, it's funny. So, you know, like you said, you know, it just takes somebody else to sometimes show you the different aspect of the song. I, I had that experience with, uh, what was the name of the song? I can't even think of it, but it was by um, Postmodern Jukebox. They sang, and it, I think it was like oh. a just, it was like a Justin Bieber song or something. And I didn't know that's what it was. I thought they, yeah. I mean, before I knew that they were covering other people's songs, I just, I heard the song and I was like, oh, that's an interesting song. And then my sister, who's much more up to date on all this than I am, um, she was like, oh, that's by, well, I think it was Justin Bieber. And I was like, okay, very different. And then I put on, I, I look for the original song and you listen to the original and you're like, wow, that's nothing like it. And yet you could sort of hear the influence yeah. what they did with it, but it's almost an entirely different song. Sure. And that, you know, some people are really good at that. Maybe, you know, like Shoshana Bean or Postmodern Jukebox, they have maybe that way of, of doing it. Yeah. And how about Flagmaker? Flagmaker uh, was more of like a sh- show-stopping moment. So it wasn't taking, she didn't really change anything at all um, from how it was originally done. But I hadn't listened to that song because I saw them live at City Center when they did that that revival with her um and she came out on stage and (laughs) everyone was just like jaws on the floor they had a guy who was like doing interpretive interpretive dance like around her Mm -hmm. and it was just like this big like climactic moment um flagmakers like i don't know for those that don't know the story very well um it's just a set in 1775 and it's this woman who's sewing the american flag um, singing about her um, husband and son who are off in the war fighting um, and lose them in the end, you find out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like how she keeps her composure is through sewing. Uh, it's just like a very heartbreaking moment. Um, but yeah, another highlight of her career, I think. That's very cool. So I should have looked this up before we were on here, but when did, uh, when did Songs for a New World come out? Do you know? 1995. Okay, so it was, I didn't realize it was that long ago. So yeah, it was actually even before Honeymoon in Vegas and before Bridges of Madison County. Yeah, and last five years before last five. Oh, and last, before last five years. I always forget he did that, and I don't know why, but I guess that is him. Yeah. Which segues perfectly into the next one, which is Bridges of Madison County. And since we were talking about Jason Robert Brown, um, I, I, I don't like all of his works, you know, I mean, like he has a, he has a very pleasant style, but I'm not a fan of, of some of the stuff that he writes, but there are a couple songs even from this show that, that I, I like. Um, but do you like this as a whole? Do you like certain ones? I was obsessed with the show. Really? I was on Broadway for maybe five minutes, which was heartbreaking. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, great. The one thing I'm obsessed with, they take away. Same thing happened with Bright Star, but we'll get that, get there later. Um, mm-hmm. So, with Bridges, I think musically, to tie into your podcast here, um, what blew me away was that he designed the score around these two very different characters. So you had Kelly O'Hara's character, Francesca, right. who's from Italy. So her, all of her stuff was operatic. You had these beautiful strings, um, all the mo- musical motifs that he used in the, in the show to underscore her scenes, scene work and the songs was, just blew me away. And then you had the complete opposite 
Stephen Pasquale, who was the National Geographic photographer, like from America, um, and his <laughs> stuff was like very folky and like had the guitar and you had his big 11 o'clock number at the end, it all fades away. Um, just total polar opposite to what she's singing. Um, and you would never think, oh, like this would go together. But uh, it, when they sing One Second in a Million Miles, oh my God, just like punches you in the gut. It's so good. And it mm -hmm. works. Like you have like this driving beat and this woman singing opera. <laughs> Basically. Well, yeah, it's um, very different. Very classically, and you have him, this pop sound, just blended very well together, and I was blown away by that. Mm -hmm. I like, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, Look at Me. Yes. And, um, oh, God, what's the other one? Uh, what We Are and Who We, or no, Who We Want to Be, right? Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that one, and then what's the other one? It's not sung by either of them. I think it's Whitney Basher is the name of the one. Oh, woman. Another Life. Another Life, that's what Whitney. it is. I, could, I couldn't remember the... Uh, the, the title of it because, which is funny because they repeated a million times on it. I guess I was just stupid. Um, what were you gonna say about it? Oh no, I just, I love that song. Another Life is great. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good one. Um, and there was, God, there's one more and I can't think, look at me, who, are, who you are and what I wanna be. Uh, oh God, what's the other one? It'll come to me eventually. Um, and it's funny when I found out that that was, when I was listening to it a while ago, my mother happened to be standing there and I guess it was originally a book and she was, I guess she had to read it in school and she was like, Oh dear God, why would they ever make that into a book? They made the movie of it, which I think was Meryl Streep and Clint Eastwood, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And she was like, mother of God. She was like, why would they ever do that? And uh, I was like, well, the music's nice enough. And she was like, Oh no, she didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> she was like, it's too depressing. Um, <laughs> Which, I mean, the story is not like very uplifting. I mean, it sort right. of is at, at times, but. And it's a slow story. Um, a lot of my friends said it was like watching grass grow and that's kind of true. You just have to go in with that expectation, I think, and it allows you to enjoy it more. Because mm -hmm. um, yeah, you can easily like fall asleep because the music will just lull you right to sleep. But yeah, some of it's definitely like that. I think the one song from that show that I think that stood out the most to tie into our storytelling that we were talking about before was Almost Real that Kelly O'Hara sings in the second act okay. uh, when she opens up and tells him the story of like her life in Italy um, and how she, what it was like, why she came here, how she was able to get here and she kind of like regrets her life now. Oh, <laughs> it's so sad. It's like, yeah. <laughs> That's Crazy. funny. I mean, I say funny, I don't mean funny in like a haha kind of way, but <laughs> you know, some, it could be funny, I guess. Um, all right, and with that, we shall take a quick break in which we will hear from our friends at Anchor. But before we do that, John, if you would be so kind as to read our handles. All right, uh, it's MusicSpeaks underscore pod for Twitter. Uh, Instagram, you can follow at MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. Uh, Facebook, MusicSpeaks podcast. TikTok is uh, MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. And for YouTube, as MusicSpeaks podcast. All right. Thank you very much. And we shall be right back. Oh, by the way, I remembered the name of the song. It was Wondering. Ah, uh, yes. Wondering. Yes. Beautiful. There we go. Now we're taking a break. Okay. <laughs> we shall be right back. All right. And we are back with John. Ooh, that was a funny, fun noise. Um, we are back with John and part two, in which we will start by talking about Bright Star, the musical. And I will admit, I'm, I don't know all that much about Bright Star. I know that it's from 2016 and it's a very bluegrass and folk based score. But other than that, I, I really don't know all that much. So what can you tell me? 
So it's actually based off a true story. When I oh. first saw it, I didn't know that that was real um, and it broke my heart that it was, but it's about um, this woman who is really, really poor in the 1920s and living in like North Carolina and falls in love with this very rich boy. Um, you know, classic tale. Yeah, and then, like how uh, Romeo and Juliet. Right. <laughs> and of course, the rich parents, the rich father doesn't want him to be with her. He wants the son to marry for money. Um, but they end up having a child together. And so her parents like hide her away in a cabin the entire pregnancy. And then the boy's father comes and steals the baby and throws oh. it off the train. Oh, dear. Uh, and so you're left wondering at the end of Act One what's happening next, because that's the end of Act One. Um, since the show's not on Broadway anymore, this is just spoilers. I'm going to give them out. Um, so the second act, you're following this this boy the entire time who's like a young writer. Um, and the woman goes on to be this very wealthy head of a paper. And so he applies to work for her. And then she finds out at the end of the show that, that that's actually her son. And he lived. Um, wow. From, he's like survived the train uh, situation. Um, so very moving story. Um, there was a lot of humor in it. Um, but very touching and like the music was very sweeping and just beautiful. Wow, that's something. And that's, a, wow, it's based off a true story. That's somewhat disheartening and interesting right. at the same time. <laughs> um, it was great and I was shocked that um, it didn't last longer. Um, I think it was just the the, the um, season that it was in. It was like the Color Purple Revival, Waitress, Hamilton. Oh. And like when you're up against Hamilton, like forget it. Yeah, at that point, yeah. <laughs> what else is going to survive? Yeah. Um, so this was fairly recently then. Yeah, 2016. Probably 2016. I, right, I, what, what I should have meant was that the... Uh, no, I guess that was just stupid on my part because I said 2016. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm going senile already. It's um, and why did you choose it? On, was it just because of how moving it was? Yeah, so I think um, the music got me. I, I didn't know that... Um, uh, what's his name? Steve Martin um, wrote music. So it was him and Edie Brickell. And mm -hmm. he came out actually for some of the performances after intermission, he'd be performing like in the show, in the band. Uh, oh yeah, he's, yeah, it was crazy. He's a very good, uh, like, and you're right, people don't know that, but he is a very good bluegrass player. That's like- Unbelievable. Like, um, yeah, I, I think it was the marriage of the music to the story, really just very moving. And if anybody is interested, you should definitely try to find a bootleg online. It's very good. <laughs> We're encouraging piracy, but that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, the mu it's the music industry. There's a lot of that. And now you mentioned that it was around the same time as the Color Purple revival. Um, and you specifically signaled out Heather Headley. Um, and why, why do you want to single her out for the, for the revival? So Heather Headley belongs in that class of women with Shoshana Bean, Judy Garland, Whitney Houston. This, and... I don't know who I'm trying to think of. I had one other name in my head and now I forgot. Um, but anyway, she um, is so amazing at telling the story through singing, through song. Um, and her acting is just unparalleled. And I know this is not an acting podcast, but- No, but say, go ahead. Storytelling, but um, I had seen Jennifer Hudson do it. She was the original. Mm -hmm. um, and she got replaced by Heather and then Jennifer Holiday replaced Heather Headley. Um, I saw all three. The other, the Jennifers did not cut it for me. No. <laughs> That there was just something like a, the role is of she's a diva kind of, but it was more of like Jennifer Hudson playing Jennifer Hudson playing uh, the role. And with Heather Headley, like she was that character and she sings that song, Too Beautiful for Words, you're sobbing because mm -hmm. you have poor Seeley who 
has like does not believe in herself at all thinks she's hideous and like she's singing this beautiful song to her uh it's very moving it was like a master class in acting uh performance through song it was great that's pretty cool I, it's you you mentioned master class made me think of um you said you went to two different colleges uh yes what what is your actual degree in so i did a ba in theater minor musical theater because the school i ended up at didn't have a musical theater major uh, okay and what were the what were the two? Uh, so it was a BA in theater performance, minor in musical theater. Oh no no, no. I mean the the colleges. Oh, I'm sorry. I went to Wagner College um, for the first two years, um, and then I transferred to Marymount Manhattan College. That okay? That was the one I knew, Marymount. Yes. Um, I didn't know the other one, Wagner. Where is that? Wagner's on Staten Island. Beautiful oh. campus. Um, and they have a great program. I just wanted to really be in the city, um, so. Mm-hmm made the switch yeah and, I, and obviously you know you're trying to move now i assume to be more in the city yes <laughs> can't get close enough yeah hey, uh, exactly see i don't know if i'd like living in the city to be honest well after covid i'm definitely not liking it here <laughs> everything's closed like you come to new york to do all these things and you can't do anything now so it's like why do i live in this tiny apartment with all these people around me i could mm -hmm. live for half this much in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> in Kansas, then there's really nothing to do. Um, but, you know, because you, you mentioned, like, like you said, the, uh, the masterclass acting is watching people. So there are some people, they just have the ability when you see them, uh, you know, they, they have the ability to take, and we talked about this earlier, take a song, make the story come alive, right? And it's, and it's more like, they're, less that they're singing, more like they're acting. And I know that Sondheim, since we talked about him earlier, um, he really likes working with Bernadette Peters because to him, for that very reason, she is one of the best. She has the ability to, um, when she's singing, she, when, when she's singing, when she is singing, she is conveying the message. She's acting basically just through her vocal ability, um, which is difficult to do. And I'm not a singer, so I wouldn't really know that. But when you watch someone, you could tell the people who are more expert at it. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's also a generational thing since um, Heather Headley is in the previous prior generation ahead of mm -hmm. us. I think our generation, everybody's into singing and riffing and yeah. like all the vocal gymnastics of it all. And when you go see shows now, like if you go see Wicked now, you don't have that same impact because you have those people just doing vocal gymnastics so when you have someone who's capable of pairing the story with the singing it's great mm -hmm. that is cool I, I always like that term vocal gymnastics because it's it's true it's it's a very accurate uh description of uh of the of the the thought process behind singing even you know the gymnastics world itself you have they have like the floor performance right whereas gymnastics was focused on a lot of artistry now it's very athletic and i feel like singing follows a similar uh or has followed a similar trend right it's often very people they're still concerned about the artistry behind it but a lot of it is to show off how much you can do yep and a lot of people are judged based on how much they can do how much they can give not necessarily how well was it done absolutely yep and i know that in the in the instrumentalist world which is uh, more what i'm familiar with it's often seen in a similar way right there are so many people who can do so many crazy things with the instruments 
um, but at how clean it is or how, how dexterous it is or how, um, what's the word I'm looking for, just the, the high quality it might be is often overlooked based on can they play these ridiculous runs? Can they, you know, jump octaves easily? Can they use their altissimo range on their instruments? Just because I don't know how much you know about playing instruments, but like when you squeak on an instrument, that's technically a note. Uh, true. So can they use that in a, in a clever way? But the actual ability of their playing is often forgotten. Yep, absolutely. Which is unfortunate. I, I you know. Hopefully we'll start to go the other way. Yeah, you hope so. Eventually the pendulum will swing back. But, you know, someone who is a very, very, I think, uh, technically good singer and also puts a lot of emotion behind it is someone who sings the next song that you mentioned, which is Old Man River, which was originally yeah. sung by Paul Robeson um, yes. in Showboat. And it's a classic song, right? I mean, everyone who is in theater, I think, eventually has heard this song. And it's really up there in, in music history in terms of like famous performances. And do you like the show as a whole or is it just this song that stands out to you? Uh, it, I'm not a big fan of Showboat. Um, it's a little too uh, golden age musical theater for me. Yeah. Uh, but that song transcends that time period as like you're saying, everybody has sung that song and you can do it in so many different ways and it still has an impact. Um, I like The Wizard and I from Wicked, I think I love the story of how that song came to be. Um, they were trying to write a more dramatic song for the show and the opening number, I'm forgetting the name of it, it's like Cotton something. Um, that song, they inverted the music and that literally became Old Man River. So when you listen to that opening number, you're like, oh my God, this sounds like a different version of Old Man River. So ah. that they did that. Oh, that's cool. So, so you're not a Golden Age Broadway fan then? Uh, I, I appreciate it. And there are, there's stuff I love, like Carousel is one of my favorite Rodgers and Hammerstein scores. It's so mm -hmm. beautiful. Um, the books of them tend to not be as appealing to me because I like more action. Right. I mean, they, they are also sometimes a little bit, yeah. you know, they're a little bit slow. I mean, I, my, my top musicals are, like we said, uh, Into the Woods, but I also really like The King and I. Oh, it's great. And again, and again, it's it's a little bit of a, you know, it, it's dated in some ways, obviously, like a lot of the stuff from that from that time period. But I always I always like to say how I I did a two year internship at a prep school for music, oh. and uh, I showed the King and I to a group of you know they're thirteen fourteen year old boys. <laughs> I had to show King and I. And I chose to do, it wasn't like I wasn't told to do it, but it was a, a lesson in, we were on like the musical theater aspect and movie musicals and kind of stuff. And I was concerned how it was going to come across to them. Cause you know, here you have, uh, uh, what was her name who was in it? Um, I was gonna call her Anna Lane Owens, that's her name. Um, oh God, who was in the movie? Uh, it was- I'm forgetting it too. Pardon? I'm forgetting it too. Oh, it, um, uh, obviously Yul Brynner was, was the king, but it was, um, Deborah Carr, there we go, got it. Yes. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, you know, the opening is uh, Whistle a Happy Tune. And I'm like, oh dear, how is this going to go? And interestingly enough, they all really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I, and you know, they had this, this ad, you know, the, the, the prep school attitude is a little That's bit, great. you know, they have a little bit of that machismo problem. And 
I was like, guys, you got, you got to bear with me. You're going to like it. I promise you. And lo and behold that they did. So I think some of, you know, the golden age stuff can definitely last through, uh, through time. I don't know how well like Oklahoma would have gone with them. <laughs> that is actually the one golden age show I do not like. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's not my favorite. I mean, I appreciate that it, it started something big, uh, and the fact that, you know, the tunes are very hummable. They're not unpleasant, but it's a little bit dry. It's, it's a little bit uh, lackluster for me. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, all, it's all personal preference. Uh, but a more recent show that I definitely wouldn't call lackluster is Once on this Island. Yes. And, this, you know, a work of uh, Aaron's and Flaherty. And as, a, you know, they've had a really big career between um, Once on this Island, Ragtime, Anastasia, Susical, whether you like it or not, you know, I mean, it was really popular. So, I, you know, you got to give it that. I, I don't personally like it, but they had all these massive successes. And, you know, I think it gives a really good look into that, that world, that culture. But why did you choose it? Is it because of that or any other, or another reason? Uh, I picked them because what they, why they stand out to me against the other composers in musical theater is because if you look at all of their shows, they pick stories from around the world. Yeah. And then the, the scores are like genius versions of like the music of that culture. So like you look at Once on this Island, they, they took that Caribbean environment and like infused that into the score and it's amazing. And then mm -hmm. you go into something like Anastasia, they nailed like the Russian sound and like the music. Um, same thing when they did um, A Man of No Importance. Um, it's kind of a lesser known show of theirs, but um, yeah. it's in Ireland and it's unbelievable. The music in that show, um, I, I'm just fascinated how they, they, they must have researched for a long, long time to figure out all those musical details because it always blows me away when, they, when, they're, when they're telling the stories. It's hard to do. It's hard to, especially if you're not raised writing it with that particular style. Right. Like obviously a, a composer who grew up in Ireland would be familiar with some of those musical motifs, some of those little, um, you know, the little accidentals here or there that give it yeah. that quote unquote Irish sound. The Russian, the composers of the Russian school, they would know that very ambiguous, is it major, is it minor, um, but dark sounding Russian, what we would think of Russian sound. Um, and yet like it's somewhat happy at times. Yeah. So it's difficult to do. And I think they do a really good job of it. Absolutely. I just and, couldn't picture someone like Stephen Schwartz or even Stephen Hunt Sondheim trying to write like Once on this Island. Like, no, they, just, it would they be... know their niche and they like do it perfectly. It's so mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Uh, and Ragtime, which I, I love Ragtime. I think it's, it's yeah. fantastic. And I like the rag, I like Ragtime style anyway. Um, <laughs> but this, between the story and the way it works with them, um, you know, just uh, the the three points of culture that we see, right? The immigrant culture, the, the um, American culture, and then the black culture. I think they do a really good job of, even within the one show, showing the three different yep. uh, viewpoints, not viewpoints, the three different, I'll say culture again, for lack of a better word, um, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, and I'm not too, like, I don't really know a lot about Once on this Island, but I do know that it's again very, it's not Romeo and Juliet, but it, you know, she is obviously in love with this one from the other side of the island um, where, or the other 
part of society, right? The more rich part of society. Um, and I feel like even there, there's a bit of a difference, right? His yeah. life versus her life. And sort of you see like differences and musically there's a difference between them too. Yep, absolutely. It's, it's a very cool, you know, they, they're a good team. And, you yeah. know, I'm interest, interested to see what they'll do from here on out. Well, it's going to be a movie. Disney's going to do Once on the Island as a movie. Oh, I that's want right. I forgot. an animated movie, but um, I think it's going to be live action from what I've heard. Oh, so I, I missed what you said the first time. You wanted it to be animated? Yeah, I, my whole life I've been saying Disney needs to do Once on the Island as an animated movie. It'd be so mm-hmm. good. Um, but I think they're going to do a live action. Uh, yeah, that's what I had heard. I thought that was what, because they were, they were looking for someone to play, um, obviously, the, the lead girl. I don't know the character's yeah. name. Oh, Two Moon, yes. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, see, I, I, again, I'm not familiar with a lot of the, the details of the show. The music, though, um, I've heard a lot of music that I didn't even know the shows from, particularly ones from Ones on This Island. I have uh, Sirius XM in my car, and uh, <laughs> I, have a, I used to have a long commute to work. It was like a 40-minute commute. And um, so there and back, I heard a lot on there. So that was, I got familiar with a lot of the songs from there. It's pleasant. I like it. Um, and, you know, that, I was going to try to make a different segue, but that's not going to work. So we'll just go on to the, the last one of your choices, which is uh, you chose just Sarah Bareilles. That was the, yes. that was the, the topic. So what do you have to say about good old Sarah? <laughs> I mean, there's so much to say. Um, I'm like her so sound. furious. Yeah, I'm, I was gonna say I'm still furious that she uh, lost to Daft Punk. Like they came out of nowhere at the Grammy Awards. <laughs> she was nominated for Best Album of the Year, and they won. I was like, Daft Punk, go away. That album, to this day, I have never listened to an album by any artist for any show, and I can literally start it at the beginning and listen to every single song like all the way through. The Blessed Unrest is the best album Sarah Bareilles has, but I put her on there. Because, yes, she's now in the theater world, um, very prevalent. Um, but she's another one that, uh, she, her, the writing of her music is, like, the storytelling. She, uh, like, when you look at the Blessed Unrest album, it was about her story of how she moved from L.A. Um, into New York, and it's kind of a love letter to New York City. Um, and so you would never think that someone could sit in a graveyard in the middle of Queens and write a song about that and make it a jam that you, like, listen to driving down the highway. <laughs> And she somehow does it, but then you're also like really thinking about like the, what she's saying and the message of the song, and it's crazy. Um, she's so talented. I th- I consider her like the Carol King of our generation. She is mm-hmm. so good. Well, that's an interesting comparison, actually. I, I like that. That's pretty. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. Now, obviously, San Francisco is nowhere near Los Angeles, but do you feel at all like a, a kinship to the? to the message of that, like, because going from California to New York. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, my sister actually went to school in LA. She went to USC. Um, And so I always made fun of her for it. And I always groaned whenever I had to go visit because I hate LA. Um, I, it's just a very nasty place to me. Uh, (laughs) Is that like physically or emotionally? um, Both. (laughs) Both. Yeah, that, um, I I think New Yorkers always hate on LA and vice versa, but, I, I, um, I forgot what I was going to say. I forgot. Whenever you went there, you never liked it. Oh yeah. I, I never liked it. And, um, I think I, I resonate with one of the songs she sings. It's called Eden. And it's a song about, um, how she considered LA was supposed to be like the city of angels. 
and she couldn't take the angels because they all started acting the same and like they're all fake and phony so she moved to new york and i thought that was genius uh, and she compared it to this the adam and eve type story yeah oh, so good that's pretty cool genius, genius writing that's pretty cool did you ever did you ever see this or know the show city of angels no no never heard of it no no it's a it was a uh, musical in the 90s oh, and yeah. uh it was fame. It won a won quite a bit. It was famous what? for yeah. It was famous for there were. It's about a writer who is writing like detective stories about this character, and okay. the stage is split in half. On one half of the stage is the character he's writing about. On the other half is him, and the stories are supposed to mirror each other. But the one half of the stage is in black and white and the other half is in color. And the way they do that, you know, with the makeup, painting the faces whiter, so it comes across that way. All the furniture is gray on one side. My parents to this day, I mean, obviously this is before my time, um, but my parents always will talk about how it is by far the most spectacular show they ever saw. And the style of it is very like, um, I don't know how to describe it. When you hear it, it's it's such a a mood, like when when you hear it a very distinctive style, like uh, 40s, 50s, but not, it's like private eye, hard-boiled detective kind of, I don't know how to describe it. You'll you'll have to hear it for yourself. But whenever anyone says City of Angels, you know, Los Angeles, I always think of that. Yeah. Because it it has that, that, and it also paints a very, (laughs) little bit of a negative picture of of Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have Uh. to check that out. I've never heard it, I never knew it was a musical. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. I, I'm trying to think of the guy who was in it. It was a famous guy who was in it. Um, oh, God, I can't think of his name. It, uh, again, it'll come to me. Um, but I have cousins who live in Northridge near Los Angeles, and uh, they're always like, yeah, we, we try not to go into the city. Although I have to imagine it's probably a pretty good, speaking of, you know, since this is all about music, uh, it's probably a pretty decent music scene I don't know if I don't know if your sister has any other musical involvement now, but I don't you know did she do any of that in in college? Yeah, she actually went to school for theater, and then uh, partway through she just changed course um, and uh, ended up graduating. I forget. I think it's I can't remember her major. Sorry, Lauren. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't remember what she studied. It was I want to say literature or something like that. Um, anyway, <laughs> she works at a bank, so it doesn't really matter anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah even if it was music it wouldn't be a, yeah yep. that's really so, funny uh, but yeah she still enjoys going to see shows um so now when okay well, well let's finish about sarah Bareilles and then i'll ask my other question oh, um yes. are you a fan of waitress yeah um i think the first time i saw it um with the original cast i didn't care for it mm-hmm. um i saw it again with shoshana bean yeah she made that show so good. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I don't know why, like she was one of the last people to be in the show before it closed. I couldn't believe it closed because she was so good. Somehow. Well, sometimes, it, you know, it just runs its course and, yeah. you know, sometimes it's the production's choice to close if they, if they well, feel yeah, it's... Producers, uh, they got to monitor that money. If it's not coming in, cut Right. Right, exactly, right. Cut it before it forces you to. Yes. Um, I only know, I, I mean, I know a couple of songs from the show, but the only one I really like is probably the, 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 well, I don't know what you would consider the big number from the show, but A Soft Place to Land. Beautiful song. Yeah, I really like it. I thought it was really cool. My sister saw her in concert, Sarah Bareilles, when she came here. Um, 
and I guess she did the that song as like one of the closing numbers. Yeah, the um, one big thing I liked about Waitress was that uh, you know the song "What Baking Can Do" wasn't mm-hmm. actually supposed to be in that spot. It was supposed to be door number three. I was um, hmm. the first version of that that she wrote, and they sound the same in the beginning. Um, take a listen to it. I that's all I've been listening to recently is that song. It is so good. Mm-hmm. Are you one of those people who listens? Because uh, I am. Who listens to the one, same song on like repeat? Yeah, and um, this is one thing I wanted to talk about while I was on here was I had a professor in college. I, I do that a lot because this professor, he told us my freshman year, first day of school, he made us all close our eyes and he was very much like you. He, he came from an instrumental background. He loves, you know, like classical music and he loves the opera and all that stuff, but he's not a big Broadway person. Um, Came on him. And I know. So um, he made us all close our eyes and all of us were a bunch of musical theater kids and we're like, uh, what is all this? Um, and he plays... Um, um, I know where I've been from hairspray. And we're oh. like, wait, what? How do you even know what this <laughs> is? random. And um, he's like, listen to the music underneath the singing. Like, don't listen to the voice of the singer. And he's like, I want you to be able to like name the instruments at the end of the song. Mm-hmm. And so we did exercises like that once a week, I think. And uh, now I feel like I've really trained that muscle where I, I, I stopped listening to the singer for bits of time. And I have to listen to a song over and over and over again so that I can listen to the underscore, underscoring beneath them. It's unbelievable. Like the stuff you like, don't realize that you hear uh, 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 until you're like taking a closer look or listening to it a few more times. Um, oh yeah. So much there, so many layers. There are, there's a lot. And actually one thing that uh, we, sometimes we do unconsciously, <laughs> this is my, you know, I'm going to be like music educator, you know, for a moment um, is that, your your brain has the ability to filter out noise, right? That's why a lot of people like white noise because yeah. they can filter it out, but it still acts as a uh, it still acts as a canceling sound. So when you're listening to a piece of music, maybe one that you know really well, your brain sort of has the ability to cancel out the the vocals, not cancel them out. You still hear them, but you're not really thinking about them. Yeah. And you can hear the, ex- I'll say extraneous, quote unquote, noise, well, it is noise, but it's music, that's happening around the singing. And men have a easier time hearing lower registered frequencies. Oh. Um, and uh, conversely, women have an easier time hearing higher registered frequencies. So guys will often identify the bass if there's a bass part, uh, like, a, like a physical, like stand-up bass. Um, or an electric, or if there's like a tuba playing and they have like some sort of boom, 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 you know, that kind of underlying tone. Whereas, you know, women have a easier time, you know, hearing the higher harmonies sometimes and they can sing that. My sister does that all the time. She'll harmonize and I I just, I won't hear it at first and then she'll be singing the harmony and I'm like, oh, there it is. But you don't, you don't pay attention to it because as guys naturally, I guess our brains are tuned to hear lower pitches, I, maybe because our voices are naturally lower. Yeah, yeah, so, probably. I mean, it could be, I, I don't know the exact psychology behind it or the, the biology behind it. But it's interesting that you, that you mentioned that because you're right, sometimes we, I, I know, sometimes I do that. And then once you hear something, it's very hard to unhear it. Yeah, absolutely. I, so many songs now are quote ruins uh, because <laughs> all I hear now is like the violin in the background like going crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I no longer listen to anything else. 
<laughs> right, because then you try to tune it out and you're like, no, I, 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 I can't do it. It's like the FedEx logo. You can't unsee the arrow that's in the FedEx logo. Oh, I know. That's so, it's so bizarre. I, I don't know how any, you know, I don't know how you don't see it the first time. And then right. after that, it's over. Or it's like the, uh, the Amazon smile. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never noticed that before. Yeah, I just, I, I, and admittedly, it was more recent discovery. And I was like, well, now I just, I don't not see it. There you go. Yep. And all the commercials, right? And they draw it as, and you're like, okay. I just thought it was a random arrow. Right, exactly. I thought so too, right. Or it's like <laughs> you're, you know, I don't know. I just guess I was just not paying attention. Um, all right. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a quick break and then come back with your little five question musical theater quiz. Okay. Are you ready for it? Yes. All right. Lovely. We shall be right back. All right, and we are back with John and myself for his musical quiz. And by that, I mean quiz about musicals, not a quiz that is musical. <laughs> All right, are you ready? Yes. Testing your, uh, your musical theater knowledge here. So question number one, the golden age of Broadway technically is recognized as ending in 1959, however, the last great musical of the Golden Age is actually considered to be in 1964. What was it? So I, my gut before you were finished was I was going to say The Sound of Music, but I don't think that's right. 1964. Because uh, like, I think Sound of Music was 61. Uh, the... 60. So maybe it was 59. Um, 64. Um, maybe I have like two options I'm trying to choose between. Sorry, everyone. Um, I want to say like bells are ringing. Interesting. I don't, I didn't think anyone even knew that show. Uh, <laughs> I love that show. I, I, I love Judy Holiday. Um, but no, what was the other one? A Fiddler on the Roof. You should have gone with that one. Oh, really? Is it? Yes. So you got that one because you had the two options. <laughs> yes, I it was. Thinking, oh, really? Wow. I don't really, I'm not, I don't listen to that show ever, so, but I just remembered it being in the 60s. Um, that's funny. Wow. Yeah. It's considered the last, the quote unquote, the last great show of, of Golden Age of Broadway. Um, that was actually the first show I ever did. Wow. Yeah, I was in the, for those listening, I do not act in case that is not clear. I am the, I am the musician alone. <laughs> but yeah, I, you want to talk about a hard part. Oh, I'm sure. Because it's very, it's like Russian Jewish klezmer, you know. I could see you clarinet. doing that. <laughs> could you? Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. It was fun, but it was hard. Oh. All right. Number two. Okay. What was the first rock musical? first rock music uh jesus christ superstar close that's the first commercially successful rock musical what is it hair oh interesting i would not consider that a rock musical but no? i guess so yeah 
Yeah, it, well, because I, it's it's really more like rock and roll, but it's also not. It's more like 60s like psychedelic. Folky, yeah. It's folky, yeah. yeah. But I guess at the time they considered it rock because rock, yeah. rock was anything that was like outlandish. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, and that was, uh, you know what year that was? Oh, God. 1969, 1970? Oh, so close. One in the other direction. Uh, 68. There you go. Okay. All right. So, numero tre. We have, what musical currently holds the record for the most Tony wins? Hamilton, right? No. Close. The producers? Yes, the producers. Very good. And do you know how many? Twelve. Yes, they do. Yep, it holds 12 wins, making it the most winning. Wow. uh, musical because it was i believe won every category that it was nominated for wow now having said that what holds the record for most tony nominations i think that's hamilton that is hamilton and how many 13 more 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 how many 16 oh my god i don't even remember that it's 16 nominations, but I believe it was 14 categories. Wow. So they must have had two people, two people in yeah. two of the category or two, whatever yeah. the divisions were. That's why Bright Star had no chance. <laughs> exactly, right. Exactly, because you put it up against something like that. Well, that's like whatever must have come out with producers, the poor yeah. things, they must have never. Yeah. That's but a, I'm that's still a, mad of that wicked loss to Avenue Q. I will be mad for the rest of my life. Uh, that I just, I, that just I don't understand. I don't get that. That makes no sense to me. I mean, I get the, well, no, I can't even say that I get the concept of Avenue Q. It just makes no sense to me. Especially against Wicked, it, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. And I have nothing against John Tartaglia, who was in it, but I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't do puppets to begin with. I'm one of those yeah. people who it's like you're at a baseball game and the mascot comes near you. I'm like, buddy, I'm going to hit you with a bat if you come near me. <laughs> so the whole puppet thing doesn't fly. All right. <laughs> Numero cinque, number five. And the last one for all the marbles. What is the longest running musical of all time? Phantom of the Opera. It is Phantom of the Opera. Very good. And what would it have been if it was still on? Do you know? Les Miserables. No. Oh. Also Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, you oh, mentioned, cats. yep, Cats. Okay. Yeah, that, that was actually, it was beating Phantom until it ended and then Phantom automatically took up the lead for as long as it continues, so. Wow. Because it's been consistently running ever since it came out in, I think, 80... When did 85, it I think, or 86? Yes, I think it's 85 or 86, because it was close to... It was just before Into the Woods, I think, which is, I think, 87. Yeah, Les Mis was that same year. Yes, in fact, I think because Les Mis won one of the categories. I can't remember which, but it was like a big cat. It was between the two of them. They were both heavy hitters and it was like, gotcha. it could have gone either way, but I don't remember what it was. Oh, anyway, but <laughs> congratulations. You passed the quiz with flying colors. It was fascinating. I learned something. Yeah. And you'd make that uh, the professor that you mentioned uh, proud. Yes. <laughs> you'd be very happy that you knew your timeline. Thank you. All right, John. Well, with that, unless you have any shameless plugs you'd like to add for anything, uh, no, everybody stay safe, wear your mask, um, wash your hands, 
and hopefully all of this nonsense will be over soon. Oh, God, let's hope so. All right, and with that, we shall say good night, and thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. All right, ciao. Thank you so much for being with us today, John. And that's it for me. I'm your co-host, Hunter Sagona. And remember, keep listening to what you love. 